HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio Network. It's a beautiful, brisk Tuesday morning in Bushwick. I'm excited to be joined by Chef Jonathan Wu. Before he started his culinary career, Jonathan received a degree in English from the University of Chicago in 2001. After college, he attended culinary school. He's worked in France, Spain, and Italy. In New York, he was previously the executive sous chef of Geisha before working as chef de partie at Per Se. He is now the chef and owner of Feng Tu, a Chinese-American restaurant located on the Lower East Side, Chinatown border. Jonathan, thanks for being here on the line. Thanks for having me. I want to begin by discussing uh, your family's American experience. Uh, were your grandparents uh, originally from, and when did they arrive in New York? Family history. This one's complex. Um, I often get asked uh, if I cook a regional style of Chinese food, and that question tends to get back to where my family is from. So my father's parents were born in China. Um, my paternal grandfather is from Beijing. He wasn't born there, but he grew up there. And my paternal grandmother um, is from Wuhan, near Hubei. And my mother's parents uh, are from Wuxi, and they moved to Taiwan, where my mother was born. Uh, my father was born in Brooklyn, so... It, where does that put me? I don't know. Something something like <laughs> between first and second genera- generation. No, uh-huh. second generation. So uh, where were you born? I was born in the Bronx. Okay. And when I was five, my folks moved the family up to Connecticut, suburban Hartford. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grew up there in the Burbs. Uh, did your grandparents stay in the Bronx or did everyone move to Hartford? Mm-hmm. Um, my grandparents did not stay in the Bronx. Um my father's parents moved to Yonkers. Okay. They settled um, about 20, it's about 25 miles outside the city. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather still lives in that house. Um, and my mother's parents, um, they 
they immigrated to uh well from taiwan to queens and then eventually northern jersey and kind of they they moved with uh my my mother's oldest sister what took you out to hartford what made the family move from bronx to uh, connecticut my parents got jobs at uh, the university of connecticut okay so what what were they doing there they're scientists. Okay, what type of scientist? Uh, my father is a gastroenterologist, so he's uh, he specializes um, in the study of the liver and mm-hmm. diseases of the liver. Um, my mother teaches um, um, biochemistry and biology and um, other. <laughs> other <laughs> now you're, other now you're ver- in trouble. You're not exactly sure. <laughs> uh, other very difficult subjects. Um, two med students and she also runs um a lab which they jointly um jointly are in in charge of was there pressure from your parents to go into the medical field or to be some sort of uh educator teacher specifically Um, at like you know college level high school level well there was there was a desire and a hope um to not necessarily be in medicine or a doctor or a dentist that was that would be preferred but any you know something like the uh, the typical professions like uh what do i mean by typical lawyer um engineer um not in the kitchen yeah i mean there's uh i'm jewish and there's always like the jewish joke which is you have a choice for your profession which is either a doctor or a lawyer you mm-hmm. know that's uh you have those two choices that you can pursue <laughs> everything else is some sort of failure my parents uh weren't that way and it sounds like uh you were able to pursue uh, avenues that you were interested in as well um can you talk about your uh growing up in hartford what was your american experience like having um a family that had uh, people who were born in America and also having some grandparents that were uh, recent immigrants to this country. Mm -hmm. So what is that? um, I'm going to use the term a blended American experience like, but um, I want to hear from you specifically what that was like growing up. Yeah, it was a blended experience. Um, I mean, just look, thinking about my mother's pantry and that's, that's a, it's a starting point for a lot of things for me. Um, but there was everything from old El Paso hard taco shells to thousand-year-old eggs to preserved mustard greens, um, meat floss. Um, but there was progresso breadcrumbs, ragu, marinara sauce, um, stuff like that. So, and my mother also um, she spent uh, some childhood years, like six to thirteen, in Pakistan. Her father. Uh, worked for a paper mill, and he got a job in Pakistan, rural Pakistan. So the f- the family moved from Taiwan to there, and this is in the '60s. So there were no, you know, if the, if they were going to eat Chinese food, he had to make things like soy sauce from chickpeas and make his own cured eggs. Um, he's a, he was a chemist, so he knew how to do those things. Um, but it's kind of funny because you know there's things like hozone now, and it's soy sauce a soy saucy product made from chickpeas but at any rate my mother really likes um those type of that type of spicing so we had any number of dolls and spice blends that would be common in pakistan and india so it is an eclectic blend so it seems like there is a a very rich tradition of cooking in your household and that it incorporated a lot of different flavors uh coupled with the fact that you 
had family in Bronx and in Yonkers. Mm-hmm. So you were exposed to tons of, of flavors. Um, I want to know how does that uh, impact your sort of teenage, early teenage years uh, in Hartford, Connecticut? Like were you um, were you always interested in moving away from that and kind of being more a assimilating into what we would consider like traditional American mm-hmm. cultures or were you uh, proud of that sort of cultural tradition that your parents were uh, showcasing in the house? Yeah. Um, in terms of um, whether or not I was like proud of it, um, it, it was more that it just was reality. Like uh, I, I'm, I was, I'm really lucky. My mother, she, my parents work a lot, both of them. But my mother, you know, she worked full time, and she found the time to to make home cooked meals for us. Um, so I had, I, I did. I grew up eating delicious food, and it was a blend of many different things. It could have been corned beef and hash one night, and a stir fry that involved um, like a, it was usually like a chuck steak sliced thinly stir fried with oyster sauce and then the vegetable was variable it was everything from romaine lettuce to it could have been button mushrooms um just but it was it was always very tasty and it was what my mother had at hand and what she was comfortable cooking um and you know i did i i definitely assimilated hardcore um but those those sorts of food experiences they always they've always stuck with me. Um, I guess you could say my family they they like to eat and uh, and that that's something that um, for sure I I took on very strongly and internalized that. You mentioned two food items that I think the listeners want some more information on, which mm-hmm. is you mentioned the eggs mm-hmm. and then meat floss. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to both of those and sure. just dig a little bit deeper into what those <laughs> what those are? Yeah, so thousand-year-old eggs. They're they're duck eggs that are chemically cooked to preserve them. Um, in olden times, from what I've read, uh, they would t- they would take um, ashes from a hardwood fire and add water to it to make potash, and that's potassium hydroxide. It's a strong base, a strong chemical, opposite of acid. Uh, that get mixed with clay rice husks and then wrapped around duck eggs, raw duck eggs. And then they probably put it in a hole in the ground, like, you know, 60 degrees, 50 degrees and, and let it ride for a year. And what happens is, um, the yolks turn gray green, um, and the white sets and it with time it, they start off clear, but with time there's some sort of a Maillard reaction and they actually, uh, they darken. It looks like aspic. It, it, they're an amazing product. They have a lot of um, a lot of umami, um, typically eaten with uh, rice porridge. We'd eat a typically Sundays would be kind of a Chinese breakfast day. So we'd have kanji, the thousand year old duck eggs, preserved mustard greens, and then brings us to meat floss. Meat floss is um, it's a type of Chinese jerky, um, typically pork. Uh, it was it's. Um, it's made, I think, my mother described it to me, and she said her mom would make it, but you take uh, some pork shoulder, um, braise it with soy sauce, sugar, star anise, and um, until it's, it's totally broken down and soft. And then the next part is very interesting. Uh, it's, it's a dry fry technique. Take the, uh, the uh, pork shoulder and then dry fry it, so no fat in a wok, 
fairly low temperature and then just agitate it the whole time. And you're breaking up the meat fibers and they eventually dry up and they kind of curl and they make it, it preserves the meat. Um, and it's a, it's a unique, a unique Chinese food stuff. Um, but it can be found in almost every Asian, Asian market. Um, the most popular brand is Formosa brand. It's, it's sweet, it's salty. Um, it's pretty addictive. And so do you just basically eat it like jerky? You just kind of bite into it or do you chop it up and incorporate it into dishes? Yeah, typically it's not eaten as a standalone like jerky. Um, It's often incorporated into dishes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's good in kanji. That's the way I I always enjoyed it typically with my parents and kanji is a type of porridge right yeah it's okay. it's 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 gruel man it's it's right <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's uh it's rice porridge but it's uh it's something that has you know it's it's filling and it's what didn't have a ton of expensive ingredients right it was mostly rice and then you put a little bit of flavoring maybe some protein on top and that is sort of how you stretched a meal for an entire family right it is exactly that it it is it's comfort in a bowl to me, but but there's also those those very strong un, uh, overtones that you're mentioning. This is the food of the poor. I mean, this is it. I've read recipes where it's nine parts water, one part rice. It's also a way to use leftover rice, and it's a way to make something beautiful um, out of out of something that costs very little. And um, and it also speaks to I, I, what I believe is is a a. Th- a the way of thinking in terms of Chinese food, a little bit of protein, protein as seasoning. And it's, it's mostly about the rice and then these little bits of pungent stuff like the thousand-year-old eggs, like preserved mustard greens and like meat floss, these little bits of pungent stuff that flavor a lot of, well, the filler. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I've, having grown up, I didn't, I didn't think about that when I was eating it as a kid. But as I started to think about opening Fung too, and I, I too, I was doing pop-ups, um, trying to get a feel for what, what, what am I going to do when I open this restaurant? What's, what's the vision going to be? Um, that idea of using a little less protein and, um, you know, vegetable four, it's a, it's a, it's a big thing now. Um, but I just think of it as, as a natural way of, of trying to explore my roots. And I, I truly believe like it's a healthy way to eat. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a interesting kind of shifting dynamic from the way that Americans have been eating in the United States for a long time. And uh, Dan Barber talks about it in his mm-hmm. book a lot that uh, what it used to be was a seven-ounce steak with a little bit of side of carrots. And then hopefully we're swapping those, right? Now it's – is it a carrot steak with mm-hmm. a little bit of – meat on the side and what we've just been talking about a little bit is congee and then uh, even like a a fried rice dish is usually rice, vegetables, and then there's a little bit of meat in there to season the dish, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems like the trajectory of food has been like meat as the star, right? So at at your restaurant, um, do you explore a lot of the uh, traditional dishes, and then do you incorporate that kind of mentality that we've just been talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you uh, incorporate some of the maybe flavors of your of your childhood mm-hmm. into dishes at Feng Tu? Yeah, sure. Um, the way that dishes evolve or are, are um, conceived at, at Feng Tu, um, it's there's a multitude of different ways. But so, for example, um, you mentioned fried rice so right now we're doing a bluefish fried rice um 
this one it it started with uh with what i believe in in terms of seafood um i I try as much as possible to use uh seafood from the northeast this area and these waters and also i'm trying to use fish that um in the culinary world would be deemed less desirable so i use porgies i use bluefish um bluefish I mean, they're all over the Long Island Sound, but it's a very fatty fish, and it spoils quickly. So if one's not getting a pristine bluefish, we can have a bad experience with it because the fat will go rancid. And then how to prepare it. I mean, because it has so much fat, the typical ways are to grill uh, or to smoke. And uh, I love smoke flavor so much. And so it made sense to me to we brine it and then smoke it. And it gets flaked into a, a a fried rice, and this fried rice actually used to be a crab fried rice. And crab, I love, I absolutely love. And you know, blue crabs around here are great, but we were, we were using jumbo lump crab, and it started to creep near forty dollars a pound. And it, that's just, I saw that, and I was like, "There's no way I can serve this. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous." Yeah. Um, so I shifted to the bluefish, and it, it just it that it was an economical thing but it it started to make philosophical sense it was like i get to use a local fish and i get to apply a technique that i love and it's delicious and then the other components of the fried rice uh pickled mustard seeds right now we we switch to brussels sprouts because they're moving into fall winter um there's pickled onions there's capers pickled chilies uh there's also minced ginger garlic and scallion so in speaking about all these components, the capers and fried rice, what the hell is that? P- pickled mustard seeds, red onion. Well, I was thinking about seafood salads that I like to eat, and they typically have those ingredients. And the other thing is it builds a nice wall of flavor. You know, every single bite, there's a lot of different dynamic things. Acidity, you know, a little spice, texture, the textural interplay. And then the other thing is using Brussels sprouts. I mean, it's a, it's a nice, simple thing. I could use peas and carrots all year round, but, I mean, why? You know, I, I, I can try and be seasonal. And, you know, the idea of applying seasonality to a quote-unquote ethnic food, um, it's still ridiculous that it's, it's a novel thing. <laughs> but but that's, 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 my, uh, that's my training. I mean, you mentioned Dan Barber. My first experience was as a culinary student. I, I had, I was lucky enough to, to be able to stage there for, for a few months, and then I did some catering with them that summer. But that was very formative. I, I actually had never, I didn't grow up necessarily eating farm to table. So that idea, and it was spring, and vividly I remember first time I saw fiddlehead ferns, first time I saw ramps, um, you know, brook trout, uh, softshell crabs, um, Asparagus, it, these things that were just like perfect at that time, it, it made a big impression on me. I want to talk about those formative years, specifically when you left the United States. Mm-hmm. So you traveled abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was after culinary school. Yeah, it was after culinary. School. So uh, you went to France, Italy, and Spain. Mm-hmm. I, I'm most interested to hear um, what originally was the impetus that made you want to travel abroad, mm-hmm. and. Uh, which which country did you spend the most time in? Yeah, um, in terms of traveling abroad, the reason why um, one is to have fun. Uh, secondly, um, you know, I what very early on when I started cooking, um, I started as a dishwasher, and um, I was lucky enough to have um, 
a lady named Kate Van Rensselaer. She was, this is in Steamboat Springs, Colorado at a restaurant called Cafe Diva. And she, um, she gave me a book called, uh, Becoming a Chef by Dornenberg and Page. And I mean, I'm a dinosaur, man. So like, this is before, like, you know, everything was Googleable in your pocket. Uh So to learn about the culinary, culinary world, I had to actually read like a a book, you know, like I opened books and I read the book. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and this book was, was big because, you know, it, it presented so many different, um, it, the book, in the book, it interviews a multitude of different chefs and um, describes their paths and they're all different. There was no, uh, it wasn't trying to present like you should go to culinary school, you should not go to culinary school, all these things. But one thing I noticed, a lot of these chefs had cooked abroad and um, it just, just resonated with me. I was like, you know what, this is something I'm going to do in my career. I had intended to cook in New York for a while, you know, years, half a decade and then go. But it just, you know, things happened and I ended up going quite early in my career. So through um, through FCI or ICC now, which is crazy confusing, but through ICC, they set me up with um, a stage in Brest, France, uh, way out on the coast, like Brittany juts out like a claw into the Atlantic. And I love seafood. So it gave me the opportunity to go work with seafood. So there's a chef, his name's Jan Plassard. He had two restaurants, Le Fleur de Sel, which is a gastronomic restaurant, and Ma Petit Folie, which is a fish brasserie. And um, though that experience, I spent four months working at the two restaurants. Um, I started at Le Fleur de Sel, uh, the sous chef David. I got there, um, and he's like, all right, you're working pastry. He worked one shift, one lunch shift with me, and then he was just like, all right, it's yours. You're doing it. So it was an interesting experience because Jan ran his kitchens with a lot of stages from people from abroad. Like there was a couple Americans there with me and then two French, two French cooks. Um, so it actually meant that we got a lot of latitude. Like we were just working stations, you know, I, I'm not going to say necessarily I, I knew everything that what the hell I was doing even, you know, but I, I just put my head down, said we, and, and did the best I could. And I guess it was decent because I got moved around in that kitchen. I went from pastry to entree. For whatever reason in France, entree is actually appetizer. It's the first courses. Um, and then worked legume, the vegetable station. And then last day, they let me work the protein station. But Brittany was, was amazing. Um, got to work with everything from spider crabs to uh, tarteau, which is like, I guess it's kind of like a Jonah crab, like a rock, uh, a rock crab here. And, uh, um, St. Pierre. So it's a uh, John Dory and eels and Rouget. It's just like so many different kinds of fish. And the French guys were pretty sick of butchering fish. So they're like, all right, let, let the American guy do it. I was like, sweet. So 60 kilos of fish a day got to butcher. And in New York, you, you just, you, you can't, it's very, very difficult to be able to to get for a young cook to be able to practice like that because the they're not letting you anywhere near that fish in new york yeah it's too expensive there's no way so yeah man i mean that was i was lucky to do that um got to see what the bounty of the region of Brittany is about um pan sarasan so like uh a buckwheat flour a buckwheat flour crepes cider artichokes cauliflower and then seafood um amazing things like they have like a very special kind of um boudin it's like a 
it was a sausage, but they took, it has actually the stomach in it and it's super labor intensive. It's like rolled like concentrically. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful product. But from there, um, I, I ended up going to Spain. Um, I worked with an American guy named Paul Reagan. He had a restaurant called Toma and, um, he, he went to ICC as well and he popped into one of the classes when he was opening Toma, he was just back in New York for a minute to say hello to one of his chefs. And uh, he turned to the class and was like, hey, man, I'm opening this place called Toma. If anybody wants to come, you know, check it out someday, give me a ring. So I took him up on it. I was in Brest. I called him and I was like, hey, I'll be in Madrid in two weeks. Um, can I work in your kitchen? And uh, he's like, all right, I guess I guess he's coming. So <laughs> he, he took me in. Uh, Toma was wonderful. Small restaurant. Um, I mean, very small. Seven tables. It was like less than twenty seats. Uh, one person in the kitchen. One person washing all the dishes, doing all the apps, entrees, and desserts. Um, that's all it could fit. It was a phone booth, and you know, I, I guess I started to have started to have some skills. So again, Paul, like one service, you just stood right on my shoulder talked in my ears like all right this is the order get this you know order came in he's like this is how we're gonna work it get this down this down this down this down one service and then he's like all right man i'll be at the bar <laughs> see it like you, you you can you can take the kitchen uh so I did did that for two months and then came back to new york then that was after that was geisha and per se after per se um i was looking for an experience that was more chill and more rustic um and so italy came to mind um one of the sous chefs josh schwartz his sister is faithful and he there was a lot of somebody went to bat for me and i got um the contact for alcovo it's a a seafood restaurant in venice Mm -hmm. and um i emailed them there was a bunch of back and forth it was not it was a little nebulous as to whether i would get the stage but I just told my mother, you know, I'm, I'm buying a ticket. I, I got a grant through eGullet for 5Gs, and this, this is how I financed this thing. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm just I'll buy a ticket, and I'll go. I got a sleeping bag, don't worry. <laughs> and so I did it. I, I flew out to Venice. I showed up, and the proprietors of Alcovo are uh, Cesare and Diane Benelli. And Diane, she's a lovely lady from Texas, but she's, I mean, she's been in Venice for a decades long time she's fluent in venetian dialect and italian but she saw me roll you know show up at the restaurant she's like oh my god he's here um and i was like don't worry diane like i got a sleeping bag i'll sleep on the floor it's not a big deal i'm i just i just want really i really want to work here and um she's super kind man she found she found me she sorted me out found a room for me to stay in and Venice was was eye opening. Like I, I did not know about um, the bounty of the Venetian Lagoon and the Adriatic. Uh, they say apparently that the uh, the calmness of the lagoon is um, the fish like it. It's very rocky too, like in the straits that connect it to the Adriatic. So the fish love to breed there. And yeah, I saw things that I've never seen before, man. Like all the bronze you know in New York are coming from Greece and the Mediterranean and they're all that dinner plate size, like 1.5 pounds, like to a T they're like so like uniform in size. But in Venice, they had wild bronzino that were four kilos, like eight pounds, like, like a, like a striped bass 
like uh, from Montauk, like big Bronzino. And they would come in rigor mortis. And, and Cesare, he would, he would bleed them. Like it, they were so fresh. It was unbelievable. Um, we got to work with Bizzato, which is uh, Venetian eels, like big, big eels. And that was actually like the, I've never really worked with, with eels like that. Just they're so big and like he would just put them on the plancha and they were just so fatty and amazing. Um, canoche, uh, so that's uh, mantis shrimp. They're they're this. I mean, it, I, I'm kind of yeah. It sounds like you could you could possibly write a whole book on on <laughs> what you've seen overseas and uh, the incredible experiences you brought to that. I want to uh, after the break touch more on how everything that you uh, learned overseas now fuels what you're cooking today. Yeah, man. Um, I'm joined by Jonathan Wu, chef and owner of Fung Tu in New York City. On the second part of the episode, we'll be discussing the opening of his restaurant, uh, how he balances his family life with the hectic schedule of being a chef, and we'll talk about what the future of food and the restaurant business in New York City looks like. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. And this song is Torchlight by Rectech. We'll be right back. chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State. Certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. We are back on the line. Joining me today is Jonathan Wu. He grew up in the Bronx and then moved to Hartford, Connecticut. After attending Chicago University and going to culinary school, he worked abroad in Italy, France, and Spain, and at Per Se before opening Fung Tu, his restaurant on the Lower East Side Chinatown border, which roughly translates to mean hometown flavor per yeah. your, your grandfather, your grandfather who was a chemist. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about, was that your grandfather that was a chemist or your other grandfather was it's a chemist? The other, he's the other one. Okay. But, but. I do want to talk about chemistry and the <laughs> fact that both of your parents uh, work in a lab. Mm -hmm. And um, so I read in this, this interview that you did with Andrew Friedman, you're explaining this dish that you originally wanted to be a, a fish custard. It goes through this long evolution. You're messing with temperatures and agents uh, to help it solidify. Mm -hmm. uh, the dish includes a concentrated fume. It has a, a meat floss, which we talked about earlier on in the show. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is that you seem like a tinkerer. You seem like someone who's very obsessed with the process. Uh, what is your process to get a dish on the menu? Mm -hmm. And then also, how do you know when a dish is ready? Well, 
Hmm. Yeah, I'm a tweak. I'm a, a tweaker. I definitely tweak. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, for me, food is the the funnest part of it, and unfortunately, the part that I get to do the least is the creative part. <clears throat> and um, the inception of dishes, it's it, it always goes back to originality and soul at Fung Tu. Those are the two things that I honed in on that were the main values in terms of the food. And to get soul, I I think about family and I start to th- I start to ask questions. You know, what what did I eat growing up? Uh, who in my family was a good cook, and what did they make? And so it starts there. The date started there. I asked. Uh, a relative who grew up in Shanghai pre-cultural revolution um, about the foods that he loves and that he can't find when he goes back. And he told me about Chinese black dates that were stuffed with red bean paste, coated in egg wash, and then fried. And it sounded original, interesting, and just delicious. And so I riffed on that. And at the restaurant, we do uh, dates. uh, Dates get poached, peeled, pitted uh they're poached in soy sauce anise uh cinnamon you know that's that speaks to the flavors that my mother used a lot and then um they're smoked over applewood stuffed with uh shredded duck confit uh battered and fried and it's you know for me it it, uh it touches on the originality and soulfulness so far as i know there's nobody else in new york really doing that um and then the main thing outside of all the the fun and researching and, and tweaking is that it's got to taste good. At the end of the day, how does it eat? Is it delicious? If it's not, then all that stuff is worthless. It tastes good. So the dates taste good. Um, that's one, um, you know, the the fried rice dish, The that kind of started with, well, you know, how, did, how do dishes come about? Sometimes it's a commercial thing, you know, whether it's the price of a product or, I got I got to sell food, you know. It, there's there's the creative, there's the art side, but it, this is art and commerce. Um, and like restaurateurs, I made that mistake probably too too much. Like I, you, I can't, you can't forget that it's business. At the end of the day, if if it's not selling, it's not making sense. So, you know, um, for example, I've put chicken wings on the menu. There's 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 the big four in my opinion right now in New York. It's pizza. It's fried chicken, whether it's wings or fried chicken sandwiches, the like, burgers, and barbecue. If, if one's touching on those four things, then you, you kind of have to. And, um, you know, so I've, I've put wings on the menu, but I have fun with it. You know, it's like uh, I always wondered what the hell those mustard packets were at, at American Chinese restaurants. But it's, it's a thing. It's totally a thing. You know, Wilson has it at, at Nama. He's like, yeah, I got mustard. Do you use it? No, but it's there, and uh, and then I, I I really love South like the mustard style barbecue sauce from South Carolina. So it was you know it was a way to combine that Chinese American mustard packet with South Carolina style mustard barbecue sauce and apply it to a wing, and it's it's tasty. I'm always, I'm happy with it. Uh, I, I like what you're saying about you know. Um, the business versus creativity because there's certain choices that need to be made by a chef. There's certain choices that need to be made by an owner. Mm-hmm. You're both mm-hmm. at Fung Tu. Um, it seems like your team at Fung Tu, the opening team and the existing crew, uh, you had a really strong bond. Your CDC uh, is Jan- John Matthew Wells. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so 
how do you uh, behave as both chef and owner uh, in terms of like your leadership style and fostering um, a creative and collaborative kitchen environment when really, you know, you say you, you love the creative stuff, but you're also the guy doing all the spreadsheets, right? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, it's not, the spreadsheets are not, not my, my, <laughs> my favorite thing. <laughs> the bane but. of everyone's existence is the Excel document, right? <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, how do I balance? I mean, what was really important to me in terms of the leadership and the uh, culture was to have a pleasant and friendly environment. Um, I know it sounds so new age or something ridiculous like that. It's not the way that I came up. Um, and maybe because of that, you know, like I, I could get screamed at all day and just, just get pummeled in a kitchen and, it didn't bother me that much, but maybe I'm just fucked up and weird. And it just, you know, I, I don't think it's Maybe like, you're tough. Maybe, but um, I don't know. I just, I, I realized that, well, it's a fact that for the most part, um, that's not a sustainable way to run a place. Like, you'll get really good people and you'll burn through them. Mm-hmm. And, and as an owner, like, forget, like, being the executive chef or something but as an owner that's a problem because then you gotta freaking find people you have to get them trained up it's time and it's money that turns into your biggest expense the retraining of people right indeed it's 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 expensive and it's it takes a lot of energy Mm -hmm. and um it's just not efficient so i i I found that um we've been very blessed at fung Tu and had um better than average meaning lower turnover than, than I, I would say the mean. Um, and I think it does have to do with, uh, with trying to foster an environment where people feel comfortable. They're expected to do, to do the right thing. Um, you know, of course, that's, of course, you know, that, that's, that's just a guarantee. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. But it doesn't have to be, like, you know, aggressive all the time and screaming and all that kind of stuff. And as far as... Um, you know, collaboration. Um, I like that. I, I, I quite like that because it, it's, it's a really like fast way. Like I learn, I learn from my crew every single day, um, whether it's a technique or just a way to do something more efficiently. And, um, I believe in that. I, and, and I tell them that I'm not afraid to say like, you know what? I don't, I, I do know a lot about food, but I don't know that. And, uh, you know, how does that work? And, I get to learn. Um, and that's, that's part of the fun of the journey, right? Like I enjoy that. Uh, so there's definitely, for example, I just put a lamb, a lamb dish on the menu. That's a whole wheat noodles with braised lamb breast, pickled peanuts, dill. There's some charred scallions in there. Um, but in terms of the way that the lamb is braised, uh, it has to do with the cook. A cook was experimenting with plum concentrate, like a plum syrup. It's a Chinese product I've never worked with. And he made these ribs at home and brought them in. And I was like, wow, these are, these are amazing. These are really tasty. And I was like, you know, Jim, like, let's braise the lamb breast the same way. Went out, got the plum syrup, and there it is. You know? And um, so it, it is pretty collaborative in, in that way. You know? like, mm-hmm. I'll, def- I'll definitely lay out like, the framework, the idea of the dish. Um, in its execution, there is flexibility. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, still focusing on, you know, kind of 
the leadership and, and you having to be in charge, um, but on a totally different dynamic than kitchen collaboration, which is um, being a leader through the review and critical process of a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, so you uh, were reviewed by the New York Times and received a two-star review. Uh, earlier this year, a restaurant that you worked at, per se, uh, received a two-star review, which caused you know quite a bit of a stir. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit about how you feel about the review process and also having worked there and then seeing what happened? Do you have an opinion on that at all? Wow. We're going into controversial waters. <laughs> um, uh, all right. The review process. Um, I, I can only speak to our experience mm-hmm. and uh, our experience with the times in particular um, I, I'm very grateful and lucky, just lucky because, um, it's, it's happened in, in our cooking careers. Like one sees the review period get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. It's so damn difficult, you know, because opening a place, I, I firmly believe it takes a year to hit one stride and those first few months are yeah, one wrote the menu, but it's still basically in development. It's still in flux. The tweaking is still happening hardcore. So to be reviewed in the first three months of being open, first six months, um, I think is uh, one is not getting a true feel for the actual restaurant. It's it's too early. It's too early. Restaurants aren't ready. Um, and I was able to get that time. And that's it's so rare. Like, uh, I, I know that, that Pete Wells was in, I mean, he mentioned in his review, he was in early and for whatever reason, like he believed in the place enough to be like, you know what, uh, they're still figuring it out and I'm not going to do that to them. I'm not going to do that review three months in. And he came back over a year later. So I was really, really lucky in that respect. I did get earlier reviews like Robert Sitsuma came in and he tanked. He just like destroyed the place and you know, it was two months in and, um, it pissed me off a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that, did you think about that like every day in the kitchen after, or do you read it? You have your emotions and then you do put it in the back of your mind and keep going. Um, I definitely in the kitchen in front of the cooks. It's not, I I'm positive. Like I'm not, I'm not going to be like, you know what? Like, that was total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, I took I took everything constructive. I, I take everything constructive out of every view I can. Um, I'll, that that's sort of my process is uh, self flagellation first. <laughs> I tend I tend to be like, okay, let's take everything at face value and see if it's true, and um, and then try and make the adjustments. I process things fairly slowly, so only after kind of sitting with with the review for a little while or any sort of criticism for a little while it, you know then I'll start to be able to reflect and think about uh you know what that that was kind of bogus but these other things were actually valid and there are things that we need to address and as far as the per se review um <clears throat> well I I think the stars that's that's a, that's the toughest toughest part of that um the actual written review 
you know, I'm, I'm inclined to say, hey, that that could have been the case. You know, um, it's it's so hard. It's so hard to stay at such a high level. And um, and the food world is it's been so dynamic in the last five, 10 years. There's just so many. It's, it just has evolved in these special ways. We got people like Renee Redzepi, Alex Atala, you know, Magnus Nilsson, just like these minds that are. Dan Barber that are just doing these things that are um, what what I find special about those those chefs in particular what they do transcends food it, it's it's more about us as humans and um, it's not everybody thinks like that you know and and uh, it's hard it, I would say it'd be hard to kind of like keep up that train of thought and, and to be current so you know that per se could have been not current and not like you know with with the vanguard of of the highest cooking in the world that's a possibility but i do i do kind of take exception perhaps with the stars you know you take somebody down from four to two that's <clears throat> that's a hell of a thing um and then you know uh yeah it's it's that's that that hurts that that, that i'm sure that i know it was, it was hurtful mm-hmm I want to, for the last couple minutes of my last question, I want to shift the focus back to you and Feng Tu. Uh, cuisine is described as uh, Chinese-American cuisine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been plenty of articles, but I'm going to reference one by um, Joe Pinsker in The Atlantic that was titled, The Future is Expensive Chinese Food. Um, so they cite prices in this article for different levels of cuisine in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese food is second to last at the bottom mm-hmm. um, at about $36 per person based on the Zagat survey. Mm-hmm. Japanese food is actually the highest at about 70 mm-hmm. My question is, is uh, what do you think about the perception of Chinese food as, quote, unquote, a, a less than cuisine mm-hmm. than, say, cuisines from fan- France, Italy, Spain, or Japan? And uh, how does that affect you as someone who uh, runs a a Chinese-American restaurant? I mean, to the first part of that question, I think it's garbage. I think it's absolutely, um, I I think it's bullshit, you know, that that Chinese food is expected to be cheap um, as opposed to French or Italian or Japanese food. Um, And the reason being is that uh, we're talking about... um, you know the labor that goes into making a dumpling it's the same labor that goes into making a ravioli and it's the difference between charging fifty dollars for a plate of ravioli okay the product could be different there could be truffles in there foie in there but still it doesn't it doesn't mean that the dumpling should be five for a dollar it does that's basically like saying that it's one's okay with slaves making the food there's no labor it's it's and that's also saying that the businesses shouldn't have a right to make like some money and so that's that's where it affects me. Um, I do get that. I I do get people saying that this. I, I had I had I've totally had guests pull me aside. Like, are you the chef? Are you the owner? Yes. Um, I've had people pull me aside and be like, "That was really tasty. That was really good," but it was too expensive. And then just come kept coming back to them like, "Okay, so you thought it was really good. You had a good time, but you think it's too expensive." You know, I mean. Uh, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Maybe if you had a really good time, you should be willing to pay for it. Um, as in, 
yeah, I'm talking about like how ethnic food and Chinese food should be valued more by the dining public. But I think in a greater sense, all restaurants, all restaurant food should be more expensive. This is a thing that's coming up and it's true. It's true. Like the cost of the products, it's it's not really being translated and the cost of labor is not really being translated in the prices that restaurants are charging. Um, it, you know, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real thing. We should be paying more for our food. Um, and for the mentality to change in the dining public, um, I don't know, man, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think it, it slowly is changing, but it's going to take a lot of time. I think we could probably fill another episode with <laughs> just talk about that. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate your time and sharing uh, all your insights and background uh, relative to your cooking career and Fung too. Uh, this has been episode four of The Line. Join us every Tuesday live on Heritage Radio Network at 11 a.m. See you next week. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.